Leave your spirit in us, Father. Let him live and reign and guide and apply the word of God to us until your work on earth is done. Let it be done through your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I thought there was one more historical lesson to be looked at from this passage of Scripture, which I guess what I've been saying in the historical survey is that this passage of Scripture has been gravely neglected down through the centuries and has only been realized and practiced rightly in the last couple of centuries. And um, as I've said in the past, it seems church and state have been joined together artificially by man and not by God. And I want to try to, well, unpack some of the history that that caused that and some of the reasons why it happens. You know, if we don't learn from history, we essentially don't learn. And so we'll take one last look at these first seven verses. And I promise you I'll have something different to talk about next week. Maybe. Verse 7 of Romans 13 says, Render therefore to all their due... Taxes to whom taxes are due. Customs to whom customs. Customs are another form of taxes, by the way. Fear to whom fear is due. And honor to whom honor. And that encapsulated, really, Paul's message in these first verses where he said, let every soul be subject to governing authorities because they are from God. There are no authorities that are not from God. Now, weeks ago, I, <clears throat> I broke that down a little bit. <clears throat> there are two types of authority in the universe. One is imperfect authority, and the other is perfect. God is the perfect authority, but in his wisdom, he has set upon us as his people, as all people, other authorities which, because of the fall, are by nature imperfect. So governments are a gift from God, but they're imperfect authorities. They can't be perfect, but we can strive for it, and there are systems that work better toward accomplishing that than other systems we've seen. So we learn from history. I think it might have been Karl Marx that said, uh, um, those of us who um, don't learn from history are destined to repeat it. Well, one thing I've learned is that Karl Marx was definitely wrong about most everything he said, except that. So I learned not to listen too much to him. But it seems, it seems the nations haven't learned that. <clears throat> so Paul uses this passage to teach the new believer the extent to which his responsibilities to the world system extend. You know, we're saved out of the world. And we're saved into something else which is the church, the household of God, the bride of Christ. So we're saved out of something, we're saved into something. The thing is, though, what God did, see, God forgot to tell the world we were saved out of it. So they think we're still part of it. And I'm, of course, I jest when I say that. So we're said to be in the world, but not of it, but the world doesn't know that. 
That's why these Christians that decide I'm not going to pay taxes, I always get a kick out of that because guess what? You are. One way or another, you are. I mean, we got a Congress right now that's trying to hire 87,000 more IRS agents. Yeah, that's what we need. But for the time being, friends, though we're saved out of the world, there are specific godly responsibilities with regard to the world system that each individual must respect and comply with. And so the admonition is self-explanatory. And I think it is self-explanatory. As you go through the book of Acts, I think you can see that as people were saved in the various places, in Corinth and Athens and in, um, in Ephesus and um, Thyatira with Lydia, Philippi with the jailer and, and the others, I think we can see they, they knew they were still under the laws of Rome at the time. But it's good that Paul wrote it down and sort of enshrined it for all time. So we are to comply with the existing rules of existing governments because they are said to be from God. As imperfect as they are, they are from God. And the apostle is taking this moment, and indeed the rest of the chapter and the rest of the epistle, (coughs) to teach individual responsibility to the new believer in Christ. We could hardly believe that most of them did not already know these things. But having them stated from the leading authority of the church of Christ, he enshrined them for the churches for all time. I hope we can see that. And with last week's message in mind, that is as far as the passage goes. It speaks emphatically. It speaks clearly to the individual Christian and not to the corporate body as a whole. In other words, in civil matters, the individual answers to the secular authority, but the church answers only to God, ultimately. We comply with all kinds of laws as churches, but once they come in to spiritual matters, to doctrinal matters, we answer only to God. And that's the example of many New Testament passages, which I hope to um, talk about this morning. So why is it, do you suppose, that for 1,200 years since the Edict of Constantine in 312 AD, that that freed the churches from organized state persecutions? You see, Constantine did a lot of good. He ended persecution. And that would come up periodically if you got a particular ruler, an emperor, who um, was taking out his problems on a group. Very often that group would be Christians. Nero burned them uh, as torches to light his garden parties. Domitian, Trajan, um, Marcus Aurelius, very big persecutors of the church leading up to the time of Constantine. But here's what's interesting to me. And this is what I want to try to get across today. It's not in the notes. (laughs) What I really want to get across to you this morning is the church was already on the right path. It wasn't a fun path. Watching your fellow church members be persecuted and burned and killed and made to recant lest their families be killed. 
People get very creative in persecuting one another. It's always amazed me how creative they could get. But the church, for the first 300 years, conquered Rome. They were so numerous. If I was a cynic about Constantine, and I'm less so than others, I think he was a Christian. Now, most, most don't think that. And I'll, I'll tell you why as I go through this little narrative. But you could be cynical just for the fact that he had to tap into the power of his citizenry, which was by and large Christian. The Christians had won. They were numerous. You couldn't kill them. A second century guy, Tertullian, said that the, that the uh, death of the saints, the, the blood of the martyrs, was the food for the church. It made it grow. Why do you suppose, then, that Constantine felt the need to step in and direct things and set a new course for the next thousand years. I mean, the church had essentially won. All they did is go out and do what the New Testament said to do and shared the gospel and lived by it. And their neighbors knew who they were. And so at that fateful moment on what was called the Milvian Bridge, anyone? The Milvian Bridge is a bridge over the Tiber River in Rome where supposedly uh, Constantine saw the light of Christ in the skies. He saw the two Greek letters, the chi and the rho, the first two letters of the word Christ. And he heard a voice that said, conquer in this sign. And of course, from that time on, they made up banners with the chi and the rho. It looks like a P with an X. And he claimed to be a Christian and a follower of of the Christian God. And um, that same year, he signed what was called the Edict of Milan, which gave back the churches everything that had been confiscated from them. So they were already, they had already clearly won the spiritual battle. But the reason I say I think Constantine was probably a Christian is because it really bothered him that within the church, there were doctrinal disputes. And they were clear, and they were serious disputes between the bishops. You might remember most famously an Alexandrian bishop. That means he was a Coptic Christian from uh, Egypt. And his name was Athanasius. And Athanasius somehow got the idea that Jesus Christ is God. And then there was another man. He was a Libyan bishop. His name was Arius from Cyrene. Remember Simon of Cyrene carried the cross of Christ? So this man was from Cyrene, and he believed Jesus was lesser than God. He was a creation of God, but still to be revered. Now, those two views persisted in the church, and the church had been arguing them out, and Constantine put himself in the place of arbiter. And he called together a great council in the city of Nicaea in modern-day Turkey. And they came out. 318 bishops came out from everywhere. I'm going to talk about that this morning. And if you ever read the Da Vinci Code back in the, what, 80s or 90s, anybody? The Da Vinci Code was a best-selling novel which um, talked about, um, well, the progeny of Christ. And it focused on this meeting. 
and the cynics in the, in the story, I remember I, I read the book and one of the cynics said, so Jesus Christ is only has his deity because it was voted on? And, and the other cynic in the story said, yes, and it was a close vote at that. All right, there were 318 bishops. We know exactly who voted for what. There was, of course, Arius didn't vote. A guy named Theonis and Secundus didn't vote that Jesus Christ was God, and the rest did. But it still wasn't a democracy. They voted based on their read of the scriptures. They were scholars. They were men who loved the word, who wanted to follow Christ. And so what did Constantine do? He banished Arius, and he uplifted Athanasius. But this is why people wonder about Constantine. He was very fickle in his doctrine, and it seems that he actually sided with Arius and only shortly later reversed the whole thing, regardless of the vote. He waited his whole life long until on his deathbed he was finally baptized by an Arian, and he became the first Jehovah's Witness. No, I... But really, the, the, the Jehovah's Witnesses are one of the groups that are, have an Aryan view of Christ, as do the Mormons, as do the Christian scientists. And the Orthodox Protestants and Catholics, we all agree Jesus Christ is God, and that's the Athanasian view, or what we might call the Nicene view. So in other words, a great governor, a great emperor, the, the most powerful man in the world came in and says, I'm going to stop all the persecution. Now, a cynic could say that was politically motivated because most everyone was a Christian by that time, or many, many were. And Romans were really tired of that tired old polytheism, you know, the superheroes of the skies type of thing, like a Marvel Comics religion. And they all flocked to Christianity. And so he might have just been trying to hold on to that power. But I don't think so. I think as I read about him and, and, and learn about him, I've read a couple biographies on him, I think he was genuine and genuinely wanted to settle the debates. But he himself was a great intellect, and he couldn't settle them in his own mind. <clears throat> so let's go back to that time. It must have been a wonderful moment to witness when the royal presence of Constantine the emperor sat in session with the Nicene fathers, the bishops from all over the three continents came to determine among themselves through the scriptures the true nature of Christ. That's a big deal. But it's a church problem. It's not a government problem. But we read of his entrance into the Hall of Witness, one of the men that were there, Eusebius of Caesarea. Eusebius wrote this. At last he himself proceeded through the midst of the assembly, and I'm quoting, like some heavenly messenger of God, clothed in raiment which glittered, as it were, with rays of light, reflecting the glowing radiance of a purple robe, and adorned with the brilliant splendor of gold and precious stones, he surpassed all present in height and stature and beauty of form, as well as in majestic dignity of mien and inimitable strength and vigor. All these graces united to a suavity of manner and a serenity becoming his imperial station declared the excellence of his mental qualities to be above all praise." So this one 
writer of church history, spoke very loftily of Constantine. I can tell you I've read some of Eusebius. He's the biggest Constantine sycophant that ever lived. He never wrote a bad word about him. But I'm just going to throw that in there. Henry Sheldon quotes from another um, ancient historian, Theodoret, and he writes this. So So Eusebius tells us about Constantine's present. It was regal, it was glorious, it was glittering, right? It was heavenly. And then we read about the bishops, the church that came in. The church represented here was the church of the persecutions, the church which still bore the imprint of the blows dealt by heathen tyranny. Many, says Theodoret, speaking of the assembled bishops, many, like the holy apostles, bore in their bodies the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, bishop of Neo-Caesarea, a fortress situated on the banks of the Euphrates, had been deprived of the use of both hands by the application of a red-hot iron. Some had had the right eye torn out, others had lost the right arm. In short, it was an assembly of martyrs. And so you see you have this group coming in, and they see the great emperor coming in, now claiming to be a Christian, I'm not surprised that no one objected, that a secular ruler was calling them together at this time. It might have even seemed like God prepared this moment, and certainly he did. So I think we can agree that's at least a turning point in history worth looking at. This is the moment when the church willingly subjected itself to the secular authority. For the moment, the secular authority was a friendly authority almost paternal in his concern for their welfare and the success of the church. It would not take much imagination to understand the appreciation of the bishops to have the backing of their emperor after so many decades, so many hundreds of years of second and third class citizenry. Though Eusebius, as I said, always wrote positively of Constantine, Um, I can hardly believe that in this case the bishops did not share his admiration of this regal person in this holy cause. The head of state has finally seen the light of Christ and the empire became the friend of the church. What could go wrong? You see, so in the moment, I spoke last week about how tradition can blind us as well as false doctrine. But also our own experience can blind us. For the moment, things are good between government and the church, right? Now, I have an example that I'm, I don't know if I should use or not, but I think I will. A lot of evangelicals like Donald Trump. He's been a friend to the church and to our causes, pro-life, right? Helped with the Supreme Court, things like that. People look to him greatly. People are willing to look by what I consider to be grave faults. Although I voted for him, I probably will have to again because I'm an ideological voter and the other camp doesn't have my ideology. So you go where you can. But I don't think there's one Christian today that would say, let him sit in council and rule on matters of doctrine in the church. That would be ludicrous, right? 
There's a separation. But see, Americans feel it in our bones that there's a separation. There is a difference. These are two different realms, two different worlds. But for 1,200 years, both Catholic and Protestant missed it. And I want to unpack a little bit why I think that is. And I don't, and I don't want us to be play things again when things get good in government. Oh, he's a Christian. Maybe we should do what he says. So having seen all of this, is it any wonder that not a single bishop rose to object to the proceedings? Here comes in this godly, angelic being, taller than anyone in the room, Eusebius says, right? Smarter than anyone in the room. It's not surprising that no one rose up and objected. Good times have a way of blotting out bad times that preceded them. And it's as if the churches paused for a collective deep breath and said, this is good. And the sufferings of the centuries was wiped away by the favor of the most important convert to Christianity in centuries, probably in history. I don't find it surprising that no one asked for a recess in order to properly exegete Romans 13. It would be difficult to imagine even a single lonely bishop, perhaps one or two, who was missing an eye or a hand or an arm, standing in the council to object to the emperor's assumed authority over the doctrinal arguments of the church. Can you imagine that? The guy standing up all hunched over and persecuted and scarred and tortured. Excuse me, gentlemen. But I can demonstrate from the scriptures that it's wholly inappropriate for the secular authority to preside over the council of learned men of the church. I wonder if someone thought it, though. And so we must ask the emperor to leave us. (laughs) You just can see how in that moment of history that was impossible for them to do. Especially since one of the articles for consideration, along with the nature of Christ, was which book should be included in the canon, which Athanasius also got right. In hindsight, I hope I've shown that a union of church and state is by no means the purpose of this passage. That's not what it's about. The most striking evidence of this fact is the passage does not speak to the church, but to individual confessors within the church. And I'm going to demonstrate that to you. Determining the intended audience of a passage of Scripture is part and parcel of correctly applying that passage. You have to know to whom it was written. And I'll give you a case in point. We know that the Ten Commandments was directly or directed at individual believers and not the state. And I'll tell you why we know that. Because I just looked it up in, in Exodus 20. And it says, thou shalt not kill, right? And then over here it says, he who strikes his mother and father shall be put to death. In other words, the Ten Commandments are for the people, the individuals. He's enshrining life, that killing is an evil thing of the sight of God. It's a sacred prohibition of murder among individual citizens. But we know from Romans 13 and from Exodus 20, where the Ten Commandments is written, that civil governments do have authority to take life. The civil enforcement authority, we are told, does not wear the sword in vain. He's God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. 
And the balance of Mosaic law says it as well. There is capital punishment in Mosaic law for several different kinds of offenses. Adultery is one. Murder is one. Right? So the individual has, is told not to kill, but the state is told that they are allowed to take life with due process. So Romans 13 is to the individual. And so along with long-held traditions affecting the application of Scripture, immediate personal comfort may affect our applications as well. So from that time on, all the way to the 17th century, even through the centuries of Reformation, no one seriously queried the strange marriage between church and state. Now, that goes on to this day. I told you last week, the Scandinavian states are Lutheran churches. They're state churches. Canada has a state church, right? Scotland, Ireland. I went to the Church of Ireland when I was there. It's really an offshoot of the Church of England. They still have state churches. We're really one of the only countries of the world that have sort of figured it out. Um, Even the most ardent Puritan voices did not object to kings and princes and parliaments having a voice in the doctrine and practice of the church. And I must say, I've always found that extraordinary. I was always a little uncomfortable. You know I love the Puritans. I consider myself a Puritan. But I was always a little uncomfortable when Puritans talked about themselves as the New Jerusalem on the way to the Promised Land and then they would deduce all these Old Testament promises and accrue them for themselves. It always made me a little, I'm not sure about that. And this is one of those areas. So we've seen how such things began, but how did they persist for so long? And through so many doctrinal doctrinal and spiritual upheavals, I'm ready to say that there's no New Testament teaching that even hints at that kind of relationship. So with so much scrupulous biblical application in the Reformation years, how did the Reformers miss this so completely? Church and state exist in two separate realities, and the New Testament is full of references to that effect. The most famous, when the Herodians asked Jesus, should they pay taxes? And he said, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Two different realms. It's a marvelous encapsulation of the principle of separation. The Lord doesn't violate Romans 13 in the least when he said that. We might presume that his detractors and his testers who were standing by would have loved him to jeopardize his position at that moment with Rome by demanding that Jews withhold taxes. I think they would have loved that. The disciples would have loved for him to speak with such boldness in order to prove himself the true Messiah. God's man boldly taking on an empire. That was their view of the Messiah. Well, no such luck. And to paraphrase Rudyard Kipling, the state is the state and the church is the church and never the twain shall meet. So pay your commensurate honor to whom honor is due. Render your commensurate taxes to whom taxes are due. Such things belong to the state, but your soul belongs to God. Now by this time, we all ought to be wondering why state and church remain combined in an unscriptural manner for over a thousand years. If the New Testament gave no hint of the union, and I'm saying that it doesn't, then where does it come from, friends? It comes from the Old Testament. And you look at the great 
confessions of faith, and they'll say that, and I've reproduced some of it here for you. But from the Old Testament, we've downloaded things like a priesthood. There's no priesthood in the New Testament. The Church of England, the Church of Ireland still have a priesthood. The Church of Rome still has a priesthood. There's no priesthood. Where's the priesthood? Where are the vestments? Where are the, where are the robes? All of these things are Old Testament things. The church from the years between Christ and Constantine didn't have these things. They got it right. But some of the, um, well, the Protestants of that age and the Catholics before them look to scriptures like this one in Ezra where it says, And you, Ezra, according to your God-given wisdom, set magistrates and judges who may judge all the people who are in the region beyond the river. All such as know the laws of our God and teach those who do not know them. Whoever will not observe the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be executed speedily upon him. Friends, in Israel there was a combination of church and state. It was always there. The point is, is Israel a unique example or are we to follow that example? Well, some of the reformers said, no, we're to follow the example. Some of the righteous kings of the land of old became both secular and religious heads of, heads of state. Men like Hezekiah, men like Josiah, of whom it says here, he made all who were present in Jerusalem and Benjamin take a stand. So the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God and the God of their fathers. And then we read this, thus Josiah removed all the abominations from all the country that belonged to the children of Israel and made all who were present in Israel diligently serve the Lord their God all the days of his life. All the days, all his days rather, they did not depart from following the Lord God of their fathers. In other words, Mosaic law was state law and church law. To be a good Jew and a good citizen, you had to obey the laws of God. And though it seems an obscure reference to me, the reformers used one New Testament verse to demonstrate that church and state ought to exist. And where do you suppose they went? Who do you suppose was the example they used? They used Herod. And from Matthew chapter 2, we read this, when Herod the king heard this, that the Christ child was born by the wise men, right? He heard by the wise men. He was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Now remember, he's, he's a secular king appointed by the emperor Augustus in Rome. All right? He's not a Jew, but he's the pagan appointment to rule the Jews. And so, and so we read, and when he had gathered all the chief priests, so he calls together the church faction, right? And scribes, to the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they see Herod giving a, quote, New Testament example of joining church and state, and therefore say it's a good thing. It's the way it ought to be. Now, to be clear from this, this isn't really a New Testament example, is it? Christ had barely been born. We wouldn't say John the Baptist is a New Testament prophet. He's the last of the Old Testament prophets. We just don't hear about him until the time when the New Testament writers started writing. So this is really another Old Testament example. 
Just as the ministry of John the Baptist was an Old Testament example. This is just a sampling of the rationale for no separation between uh, for no separation between church and state from Constantine to Jefferson. I wrote it in the notes. I could have said from Constantine to Roger Williams. I must say, I find the references, along with a plethora of others, obscure and contrived to make a point. You ever read the confessions, even the Baptist confession, and you go down to the proof text and you read them and you think, well, I wonder why they use that. Some of them are very obscure. And I'm going to give you an example here from the Westminster. The Westminster uh, was written in 1644 by a group of Puritans. It becomes the confession of faith for the Presbyterian churches of the world. And it says this, The civil magistrate may not assume to himself the administration of the word and sacraments or the powers of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Thank God they made that distinction. And then he says, Yet he, the civil authority, has authority, and it is his duty to take order that unity and peace be preserved in the church and that the truth of God be kept pure and entire. In other words, we should ask Joe Biden to settle our doctrinal disputes. (laughs) This is what this is saying. You realize this? I mean, they, you know, this is great in a time when 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 the king is is presumably a Christian, but what about the next king that's not? It says further that the secular authority is responsible to suppress heresy. How would you like that to be? How would you like the cops to storm in and say, you're preaching heresy? We are so grateful that our founders figured this out. This is a gift from God. All blasphemies, it says, and heresies be suppressed. All corruptions and abuses in worship and discipline prevented or reformed, and all the ordinances of God duly settled, administered, and observed. Friends, if the state was in charge of the church, I guarantee you we wouldn't be here. And that's what happened in uh, the Soviet Union. They let the churches stay, right? They let the... They let the uh, Russian Orthodox Church remain there, but they appointed all the priests and the pastors and uh, the leaders in the church. They controlled the narrative. The Belgic Confession, which was one that was written because the Spanish were in the Netherlands at the time, it says that uh, uh, there's a footnote in the Belgic Confession that says, This section, like the corresponding section in other Reformed confessions, is framed on a theory of a union of church and state. They all made the same mistake. So, how was the essential connection missed? It's simple. The fact that Israel was a unique historical example was not recognized. Friends, Israel's unique, it's all done. It did what it came to do, what the Lord had for it to do. The citizens of church and state, as it were, consisted of the same people in Israel. All you had to do was be born, and you were saved into the church and the state. They were all members of both by birth. Unlike the church where there's no birthright citizenship, to be a member of the church is not a matter of birth. It's a matter of rebirth. Lloyd-Jones writes this, but all that we see in the Old Testament was for the time being. It was preparatory. It surely is perfectly plain when we come to the New Testament that now we have come to the fulfillment in Christ that no longer obtains. 
So he demonstrates the fact that the national state of Israel was temporary and expired with the statement of Jesus, which says, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. It was temporary. Christ noted it repeatedly. Friends, the whole tenor of the New Testament is that Israel has performed its temporary task. It produced a Messiah and could prove it was him. But now believers will transcend the physical and the temporary. They are people of all nations and live under the laws of those nations. Friends, when you become a a Christian in another country, you don't have to move your country to honor God. You don't have to move to a, quote, Christian nation. There is no such thing, by the way. There's no such thing as a Christian nation, a Christian company. Friends, the only things that can be said to be Christians are human beings. We're Christians. There's no Christian flag. No, so believers will transcend the physical. They can be born again into the church in whatever country they're in. They're people of all nations, and they live under the laws of those nations. But the church belongs to Christ. He's the head. He's the government. No secular intruder may be allowed to enter or be elected into leadership of the kingdom of God. And the words of Jesus say as much. Imagine putting it up for a vote as to who would lead the church in the land. Hope it wouldn't be a popular vote. So we read this from from Matthew's Gospel. Jesus called them to himself and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And those who are great exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. In other words, he doesn't run for office. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The secular authority should not be appointing leaders in the church, which they still do in the countries I mentioned. It's still done. When Henry VIII disbanded Rome, he declared himself the head of the church, and that went right down to his son Edward. And that was great because he was Protestant and he loved the Puritans. But guess what? Edward lived, what, six years? Died at 16 or so? And then Mary came in, the Catholic, Bloody Mary. Her way of changing the country back to Catholic was to kill the Protestants, and so she earned her name. And a very famous cocktail named after her. After her was Elizabeth. She's friendly to the Protestants again, right? And it goes right down the line. None of this really affected who was saved and who was right before God, but we treated it as though it did. Look what, listen to what Paul says. Talk about a separation of church and government. He says, dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to the law before the unrighteous and not before the saints. You know that, right? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? You know, you're not allowed to sue each other. <laughs> Unless you hire Daniel to be the... uh... 
the lawyer. To the Philippians, he writes, our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he's able even to subdue all things to himself. And most famously, Pilate asked Jesus if he was a king, and Jesus said, yes, but my kingdom is not of this world. It's not like yours. It's different. And we missed it. <laughs> Lloyd-Jones writes again. And i got to tell you, as I read Lloyd-Jones, and you know I love Lloyd-Jones, and someone asked me today, can I get some commentaries on Lloyd-Jones, because they're, they're very good. I didn't know his position on this. I wasn't sure where he stood. I thought I remembered he was right on this, but he's really a Puritan. And he really could have held to, uh, to the Westminster or one of the confessions, but he saw through it. And so he writes, in the New Testament, you always have a contrast between the natural and the spiritual. And throughout the New Testament, regeneration is seen as absolutely vital. That's why if you're guided by the New Testament, you can never have such a thing as a state church. Even if your favorite politician becomes the leader of it. So if a king... Friends, comes in the door, or a president, or a parliament, or a priest comes in the door and makes a profession of Christ. We don't invite him up to the pulpit. We say, take a seat and use your gifts like everyone else and repent of your sin. No one in the church comes in with greater privilege than anyone else. James said as much when he wrote, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings in fine apparel, and there should come also a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, you stand here or sit here by my feet. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, I wanted to close with this one ancient epistle that was written to someone named Diognetus. Maybe you've heard of the epistle to Diognetus, written around 130 <coughs> A.D. So this is the time when the church was the church, and there was no Constantine, and they were being persecuted. And with each new government, with each new emperor, there was a new form of persecution. And this is what was written by this wise anti-Nicene father. Christians are distinguished from other men neither by country nor language nor the customs which they observe. For they neither inhabit cities of their own nor employ a peculiar form of speech nor lead a life which is marked by any singularity. In other words, they're not a national body. They don't have a national language. They have a whole bunch of languages. The course of life which they follow has not been devised by any speculation or deliberation of inquisitive men, nor do they, like some, proclaim themselves the advocates of any merely human doctrine. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others and yet endure all things as if foreigners. They are in the flesh but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They love all men, 
yet are persecuted by all men. When punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners and are persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. Seems to me they didn't need a great emperor to figure out who they were and who should govern them. Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you for the word of God, but also for the witness of history, O Lord, that shows us who we are. May we hold fast to our understanding of who we are in Christ. And may we cling to it when times are not as blessed as they are today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.